I think what the Pentagon has come to realize is if we just continue with our planned programs, what's already in the budget, and we don't make any changes, over time, our confidence in being able to deter and, if necessary, defeat Chinese aggression will necessarily erode. So we can't just sit on our laurels or stay, stay the course. We have to change. Hello, and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Julia, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Chris. During the first decade of the 21st century, the U.S. Department of Defense prioritized counterterrorism and counterinsurgency measures in the Middle East and across the globe. A major shift in strategy began slowly but surely in 2012, driven partly by China's more aggressive behavior and new military capabilities, including cyber and electronic weapons and precision missiles developed specifically to exploit U.S. vulnerabilities. Despite this shift in strategy, experts suggest that the Pentagon has not made the changes necessary to meet the threats posed by a stronger and more aggressive China. In this episode, we will discuss what reforms are most important for the Pentagon to undertake to prevent U.S. decline in this new era of great power competition, and how these changes will be applicable in key geopolitical regions, including the Indo-Pacific. Joining us today is Michelle Flournoy. Michelle Flournoy is the co-founder, former chief executive officer, and now the chair of the Center for a New American Security. Michelle served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from February 2009 to February 2012. She was the Principal Advisor to the Secretary of Defense in the formation of National Security and Defense Policy, oversight of military plans and operations, and in the National Security Council deliberations. She led the development of the Department of Defense's 2012 Strategic Guidance and represented the department in dozens of foreign engagements in the media and before Congress. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm happy to be with you. Before we delve into what the United States should do to rebuild its military edge, it might be helpful for our listeners to kind of go over what U.S. military doctrine post 9-11 has looked like. So before this current emphasis on great power competition, did the U.S. have another strategy and how have we executed that? Sure. Well, you know, post uh, 9-11 attacks, the U.S. military really turned to focus on counterterrorism and specifically uh, going after al-Qaeda, you know, certainly in uh, the Afghanistan-Pakistan region, but also globally. Of course, it also led to to the invasion of Afghanistan and then counterinsurgency operations that went on for almost 20 years there. Uh, And of course, uh, the invasion of Iraq happened uh, in that period and so forth. So the real focus for about 20 years was counterterrorism and counterinsurgency, um, with some emphasis on deterrence of other threats like Iran and, and so forth. Um, but the force really became honed for those missions, um, and uh, which requ- have very, very different requirements from the kinds of missions that we can see in the future with the rise of China in particular, and the kind of great power competition that we anticipate in the next 20 years and beyond. Right. And on that note, the Pentagon has, like you said, signaled that our current capabilities would not allow us to be successful in a conflict against China. So could you delve a little deeper into why might the U.S. military be at a disadvantage when it comes to China? And what new capabilities do China or Russia have or have they developed that might dilute the U.S.'s military superiority? Yeah, I, you know, I think that um, 
the rise of China and, and frankly, the investment that both China and Russia have made in what's called anti-access aerial denial systems, meaning uh, systems that are really designed to uh, create layered defenses and thwart our ability to project power and forces into uh, the region where we would need to defend an ally or defend our interests. Um, that means that we're going to face much more contested uh, battlefields in the future in all domains. Um, so whereas in the past, you know, in the, the famous example of the first Gulf War, I mean, the U.S. would go in and establish superiority in each of the critical domains, in the air, at sea, on land, and then with that superiority have pretty substantial freedom of action to prosecute uh, um, offensive operations and, you know, roll back an adversary's aggression. In the future, that cannot be assumed. You know, the environment is going to be contested uh, from the beginning, whether it's cyber attacks and attacks on our space assets to try to prevent us from moving forces into the region in the first place. When we arrive, we will face all kinds of anti-ship missiles, anti-air missiles, land attack missiles on our bases, um, highly lethal, highly contested environments. So we can't assume that we will uh, achieve and maintain superiority in any domain. So the new challenge is fighting in an, in an environment where you will uh, be constantly have your communications, your command and control, your intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance systems disrupted. You know, you'll connect to the network, then it'll, you'll, you'll be disconnected, and then you'll reconnect. And then through all of that, you have to have the resilience to continue operating and being effective. So it's a, it's a really challenge, a different set of challenges than what we've focused on in the past. Um, so there is a sense that we do have the best military in the world, and I believe that is still true today. I, I, I'm not sure we would lose. Uh, I'm, in fact, I'm pretty sure we would win, would win a conflict with China today. The problem is we can't rest on our laurels. I think what the Pentagon has come to realize is if we just continue with our planned programs, what's already in the budget, and we don't make any changes, over time, our confidence in being able to deter and, if necessary, defeat Chinese aggression will necessarily erode. So we can't just sit on our laurels or stay stay the course. We have to change if we're going to keep our confidence and, and our ability to win. Right, and as you said, in the past uh, few years, you know, bipartisan government, U.S. government officials, in and out, um, and people outside of government have directed the Pentagon to change from, you know, like you said, counterterrorism operations to a focus on uh, more on great power competition. And in your last Foreign Affairs article, you've outlined several reforms that the Pentagon should undertake to confront these new challenges in the 21st century. Uh, can you kind of delve into what specific reforms you suggest the Pentagon should implement so it does not lose its military edge to China? Sure. Um, I think the, the number one change is a change of mindset and a change, a conceptual change, meaning we now have to think, instead of being the conventionally dominant player, we have to think about going into you know, a region where China is the resident power, they will have quantitative advantages, they will have the home, home uh, team advantage, if you will, and we have to project power over very long distances into a very highly defended 
um, environment. So we have to be the asymmetric thinker. We have to think about how do we use our uh, capabilities um, to undermine uh, their strengths, exploit their vulnerabilities. Um, so the first is a change of mindset. The second, relatedly, is we're going to have to have new concepts of operations for being able to achieve our objectives in that very different environment. Um, and that's going to take lots of wargaming, simulation, experimentation, really competitive process of, of concept development. Um, the third is that we have to go from kind of prototyping and demonstrating new technologies that can really give us an edge, whether it's AI or unmanned systems or um, others, to actually being able to adopt those systems, those new capabilities, and marry them with existing systems at speed and at scale. And it's that agility to adopt innovation, which is really the, the critical long pole in the tent that is, is a, a real challenge for the department right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you said, you know, there needs to be significant reforms in, you know, how we, how the United States invest in new technology, military technology, how we, you know, as you mentioned in your article, get out of the valley of death and, you know, actually implement these new technologies in our uh, tactical force. Um, but at the same time, you know, legacy platforms like tactical bombers have strong support in Congress uh, because they employ thousands of people in districts across the nation. So what is the best way of overcoming this congressional pushback with regards to what equipment and technology the Pentagon needs and uh, purchases in the years to come? And more broadly, how do we um, uh, improve the agility at which the American military is adopting new technologies? So I think, first of all, the legacy systems are not going away entirely, right? I mean, I think any any future we can imagine, there'll be, you know, 70% of the force is going to be systems or platforms that are already in the budget today. The, the name of the game is finding those cutting edge technologies, some of them coming from traditional defense suppliers, some of them coming from non-traditional commercial tech suppliers, and marrying them with the legacy system. So what are the you know, electronic warfare and unmanned systems and directed energy and other technology capabilities that need to be married with the aircraft carrier to keep it relevant and combat effective and survivable in a future and much more lethal uh, environment? So it's really the marrying of it, which means that we do have to make some trade-offs. And some of those trade-offs may be um, constraining the size of the legacy buy in order to take some of the money and invest it in the technologies that will ensure that what we do buy, um, you know, even if slightly less, will be that much more effective than if you bought more numbers but didn't actually increase their capability with new technologies. So it's kind of finding that knee in the curve where you trade off a little bit of quantity for a huge amount of capability enhancement um, by investing, you know, that sort of next dollar in the technology as opposed to one more platform. Um, but it's also changes in process where we just have to develop a much more agile acquisition process when we're trying to bring in new technologies. You know, we our current acquisition process takes, you know, we spend years up front 
defining requirements, system requirements, kind of the, to the nth decimal point. Um, and then, you know, we drive a sort of milestones-driven process to try to keep big, complex programs like procuring, you know, fighter aircraft or bombers or aircraft carriers. We try to keep use that process to keep them on cost and on schedule. But if you're trying to develop a software-defined system or bring in a, an AI-defined system or an unmanned robotic system, that is the development process is very different. It's an agile development process, which is highly iterative, where the cycle times are very fast. Um, and so you can't lock in requirements up front and then expect this to work. You're constantly refining those requirements um, as you develop the technology. At some point, you know, yes, you say, okay, this is the version we're going to go take into production. But we haven't trained our acquisition professionals on that approach. We haven't made them expert in that, uh, overseeing that, uh, nor have we incentivized them or rewarded them in terms of promotions and recognition and career paths to really be, you know, ninjas in, in agile uh, acquisition. So that's a key change that has to happen if we're going to uh, accelerate and speed the adoption of these systems that will be cr crucial. So we've discussed various facets of American military capabilities. And I guess what I'm wondering now is how would these changes look like in practice um, in key geopolitical areas? So for example, how could these changes help the United States deter China from invading Taiwan um, in the future? Well, I think first of all, um, we need to have a network, uh, a network of networks um, for command and control um, the military is currently calling this joint all-domain uh, 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 command and control. Um, and the idea is to have a resilience so that even under attack, even with all constant disruption, you know, we can still operate as, coherently as a joint force. So that's, that's thing one. Thing two is, I think, to leverage artificial intelligence and machine learning to speed the, our processing of information, to be able to sort the wheat from the chaff um, when in a very information-rich environment, um, to uh, bring the right information and the best insights to our decision makers faster than the other side can do it. So if we get advantage, decision-making advantage, with both the speed and accuracy um, of our use of information intelligence, that's a huge source of advantage. Um, a third example is um, because we will be, you know, in any scenario, either in China's, you know, could be China's backyard, could be Russia's backyard, but we will be far from the continental United States. In many cases, we will uh, face numerical advantages um, from the other side. And so we have to think about how do we uh, counterbalance that, and how do we comp greatly complicate their planning and their efforts against us? And part of the answer to that is uh, human machine teaming, meaning pairing unmanned systems to buy back quantity um, uh, and, and to complicate an adversary's attack planning, um, pairing those with um, 
human systems, meaning piloted or you know manned systems that can direct those unmanned fleets. That's another example. You know, if you put all those things together, um, uh, you would be able to uh, either uh, deny many scenarios of Chinese aggression from being successful or be able to hold enough at risk, things that they hold dear at risk, um, that maybe you could affect their calculus uh, and help them to decide maybe maybe today's not the right day to pursue uh, 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 an act of aggression. So that's what it's really about. It's having the, the capabilities that will enhance your ability to deter or defeat uh, aggression should it be contemplated. And so these same capabilities like human machine teaming, do they also apply similarly, um, say, in the in Southeast Asia, um, especially for the United States to deter continued Chinese maritime claims? Since um, I'm not sure, it seemed to me more like China may find Taiwan as a more important um, asset for itself than its uh, maritime claims in Southeast Asia. So would these technologies apply similarly in these two regions? Um, yes, um, but I think that, you know, the other thing that's really important is, um, first of all, being present, showing up diplomatically in the region, um, showing up militarily uh, to do things like freedom of navigation operations, to exercise with allies and partners, to be present as a Pacific power, um, to be very clear about our interests and what we will defend, um, and to and then to demonstrate our resolve again through presence, through demonstrations of capability, through work with allies and partners, um, and and I think all of that contributes to deterrence beyond just the military capability itself. I also wanted to talk about um, you know we talked a lot about what American military can do develop new technologies, utilize AI. You've mentioned a lot about, you know, marrying new technology with legacy platforms. I'm also wondering how alliances kind of play into this debate about American capabilities to deter China. And there's uh, the Quad, for example, is gaining um, increasing relevance in, you know, discussions about American security. So, what is the United States doing right in terms of military cooperation with allies and partners around the world? And in what ways can it improve its current uh, leverage and activities with um, alliances to have better standing in terms of um, addressing uh, the threats from China? Well, the Biden administration has actually put a huge emphasis on revitalizing um, alliances and partnerships um, based on the understanding that this is a tremendous and frankly, unique source of strategic advantage for the United States. China doesn't have allies. Russia doesn't have allies. Um, it's it's really an amazing source of um, advantage for us when we can um, consult with allies, uh, identify shared interests and values, um, identified shared purpose, and and approach um, these challenges together, arm in arm. Um, you know, side by side. That's a much more formidable uh, counterbalance, if you will, to the U.S. trying to do this alone. Um, and so I do think it's a correct focus. I think the Quad has a great deal of potential. I don't think it's going to become, you know, as some have said, the NATO of Asia. Um, that's not how Asia really works. Um, but I do think these are 
you know, with Japan, Australia, India, these are three democracies with shared interests and shared values, or at least overlapping, um, that are very concerned um, and have all had different experiences with a much more assertive and in many cases aggressive China. Look at Japan's experience with China in the East China Sea. Look at Australia's recent experience with China vis-a-vis its decisions with regard to Huawei. Look at India's experience with China um, on on uh, on the border disputes um, between India and China. Um, so you know they have their own interests in trying to push back against Chinese aggressive behavior, and I think. Uh, cooperation among the countries, not only with the United States, but with each other, can be very a very powerful source of um, counterbalancing China in the future. We discussed the American alliance with India, and as you said, Japan and Australia, and technologies the United States should invest in to counter Chinese anti-access area denial weapons. The undertones of this conversation really revolves around a rising China with a growing military and a degree of expansionist ambitions. And the broad debate is on what type of playbook uh, we, are, we should be using against Beijing. Should we focus on deterrence or containment or perhaps aspects of both? And when we do that, where do we draw the line between containment and deterrence? Yeah, I don't think containment is the right conceptual frame for a number of reasons. Um, it's such a different situation. You know, um, China is fully integrated into the global economy. You know, it does have um, expansionist aims in terms of its influence. Um, it's not, I don't believe, beyond Taiwan. I don't believe it is a territorially expansionist power that's seeking to invade and conquer lots of other countries in the region. It just wants to be the dominant power and live in a world where might makes right, and it can dictate terms, whether it's with regard to disputed disputed territories, disputed uh, fishing rights, disputed resource access to resources and minerals. Um, it wants to be the big dog and to be able to dictate terms to smaller countries. Um, and it doesn't want to be constrained by a rules-based order that was created uh, when it really didn't have a seat at the table, you know, 75 years ago at the, uh, you know, at the conclusion of World War II. So, um, you know, it's, I, I just don't think containment's a useful frame. I think what is, is we have to try to manage the rise of China. We have to try to deter its aggression, and we have to compete effectively with China in a whole host of areas, not just military, but first and foremost, economic, technological, even ideological in terms of the contest between an authoritarian system and democratic free market systems. Um, So we have to compete effectively, um, but without, you know, uh, getting ourselves into an open military conflict with another nuclear power, if we can avoid that, because that risks a pretty catastrophic outcome for for all of us. Um, So all of this to me says, I think the Biden administration's right to focus on, you know, turning the corner on COVID, uh, getting the economy moving again, investing in the drivers of American competitiveness, as and investing in our alliances and partnerships, sort of as the foundation, if you will, for approaching China, both in terms of competing and confronting where we have to, but also in terms of 
cooperating uh, where we have uh, common interests like on climate change and future pandemic prevention, nonproliferation, those sorts of issues. And when it comes to deterring China, especially, I would say, militarily in um, areas in China's backyard that we talked about, like with Taiwan or the South or Southeast Asia, one question that I had was, um, you said, like you said, we don't want to risk um, increasing the risks of a nuclear war with China. So how can we implement these new technologies that would be um, that would strengthen our own military in China's own backyard without making it seem like an offensive move to China and thereby perhaps increasing the tension and risks of, of conflict? Yeah, I think we have to demonstrate with our own rhetoric and our actions and behavior that we are you know, in the region to, to underwrite the rules-based order that has enabled ironically, it's enabled China's rise. It has helped create the uh, environment of prosperity and stability that allowed for the miracle of of Chinese rapid rapid development and bringing millions of people out of poverty. I mean, so we want to keep that stability and that prosperity in the region uh, going uh, going forward. Um, we are in a defensive posture. We're not there to take over any country. We're not there to dictate terms. We are there to uphold an international order that is sanctioned by the UN and other multilateral organizations. Um, we are there to protect our interests and our allies and our partners. Um, and, you know, if we all play by the rules, there shouldn't be conflict. Um, and so, um, I, you know, I think we can, with our words and our actions, demonstrate um, that we are there, you know, in a defensive posture and in a deterrence posture, not in one that is going to be launching aggression against China in any way. On the kind of note of talking about defensive posture, importance of our rhetoric and our actions, I'm wondering what, what you what your opinion about uh, American adoption of nuclear weapons, no first use. You mentioned previously, we do want to avoid a nuclear con- uh, conflict with another nuclear power, and you know there are you know as you um, there are debates about like whether China China Chinese nuclear no first use policy is credible if they are committed to it, but they. They do have that policy in place. I'm wondering, should the United States adopt the same to convey, further convey that, you know, the American interest lies in preserving, you know, law, law-based international order, a purely def- defensive posture, and a commitment to uh, reducing tensions between the two countries? Um, I don't think so. For So I, I do believe that um, we need to have, keep nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence in the background of our national security strategy. And I think they largely are. You don't hear the U.S. nuclear saber rattling, you know, with regard to any other country. Um, you don't hear the U.S. talking the way uh, Russia talks about escalating to the use of nuclear weapons in order to de-escalate in our doctrine. Um, so you want nuclear weapons in the background. The problem for us is that a no first use policy, official policy, would undercut our extended deterrence commitments to our key allies, uh, our allies in NATO, our ally Japan, South Korea, and others. And if they really believed that that no, you know, we would never never use nuclear weapons 
first under any circumstances, that means they can't count on our nuclear umbrella. And that could lead to a raft of proliferation of other countries feeling that they had to become nuclear weapon states themselves. So I actually think um, our current stance uh, where we, we, they're in the background, they're not you know, front and center. They, are, they would be used only as an extreme last resort in hard to imagine circumstances, that that's the right posture. Because, but, but I wouldn't take it into no first use because of the damage that would do to our extended deterrence commitments to allies and the potential uh, additional proliferation that could unleash. While on the topic of nuclear weapons, the Trump administration and congressional Republicans have pushed for the development and deployment of low-yield nuclear weapons. Should the Biden administration continue this approach in an effort to make nuclear deterrence and umbrella more credible to both adversaries and allies? We have a lot of options in our um, arsenal already. We have gravity bombs that you can sort of dial yield on, if you will. Um, uh, we now have the SLBMs that have lower yield options and so forth. Um, I don't think there's a need to develop new weapons uh, with low yield. Um, to you know, I don't think that's imp- you know, I don't think that's necessary to underwrite deterrence and to make our deterrence credible. And it's also given all of the innovation that needs to happen on the conventional side of the force and investing and bringing things like AI and unmanned and directed energy and other key technologies for deterrence and defense into the force. I just don't think that's where we should be spending our money, or I I don't think we should be spending on additional types of low yield nuclear weapons. I think we have what we need. Michelle, we often like to end our podcasts by looking towards the future. So with that said, what exactly are the stakes here? What happens if we fail to reform and continue to um, remain where we are militarily? And what will that mean for U.S. foreign policy in the future? I think the stakes are, you know, if we do not uh, continue to make these investments um, and uh, ensure that we can deter Chinese aggression, defend our interests and our allies and partners in the region, we could end up with an Asia-Pacific, an Indo-Pacific, where China writes the rules, um, where there is no respect for international law or norms, um, where they dictate terms on trade, where they dictate terms on um, freedom of navigation and movement, uh, where they dictate terms to smaller countries on any number of issues. And I think that would be very damaging to our economic and security interests. Um, it would be very, uh, very difficult for our allies and partners. And I just don't think that's the world we want to live in. Um, we fought very hard um, in World War II to be able to work with the international community to define a set of an international order, a rules-based order that could enable everyone to experience security and prosperity and, and, and the benefits of stability. We shouldn't give that up. We should fight for that. You know, we should, I'm not suggesting we should, you know, I'm saying we should, when I say fight for it, we should invest in trying to hold on to that, to adapting it to the new conditions of the 21st century, but we shouldn't let it just slip away um, because, uh, you know, uh, 
the China challenges us. We, we should make sure we contest that um, and do it to the best of our ability uh, while uh, deterring conflict at the same time. Thank you so much, Michelle, for coming on the podcast today. Yeah. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.